What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Nicole Williams Ruiz at Compound. Compound's a thesis-driven seed-stage venture firm investing in bleeding-edge technology on the brink of commercialization. Within a role, Nicole focuses on finding and supporting frontier tech companies at the seed. In this talk, we discuss narrative-driven investing, ingredients of great narratives, opportunities within deep tech, and the future of digital education. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today we have a really cool investor, friend, etc., kicking in with us, Nicole Williams Ruiz from Compound. Yeah, we're just really excited to have her and diving into some of the really interesting spaces she's looking at today. In addition, to tell a bit about her story so you can get to know her as well as we do. And uh, yeah, with that, Nicole, say what's up. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and. Maybe anything else you want the audience to know about you, and then we'll dive into some questions. Cool. Thanks, you guys. Thanks a ton for having me, of course. Yeah, let's see. So I'm Nicole. I work at Compound, which is a frontier tech-focused firm. Generally, we're pretty thesis-driven. And so I started the firm about a year and a half ago now during COVID, right at the peak of that. So that in and of itself was an interesting experience. But I actually found my way to Compound through Twitter, which is funny. I had most recently been in Lambda school and I was looking for a job. I was studying data science and I was tweeting about looking at different ML lab opportunities. I was really excited about the intrapersonal job opportunities and machine learning rather than the ones where you're at a desk, heads down all day. And my boss, Michael Dempsey, who's a partner at Compound, happened to be a mutual of mine on Twitter, reached out to me and was like, hey, you should think about VC. It seems like it would overlap with a lot of your interest in research and specifically that really aligned with Compound's approach to investing, which is like reading a lot of technical white papers and forming a really strong view on all these frontier tech industries and how to invest in them rather than investing reactively. And so we ended up chatting a little bit and hitting it off and in shared visions about how to treat people about frontier tech, about investing with conviction and being honest about when you don't have that conviction to founders. And so that was definitely an atypical introduction to the VC world. And I was learning a lot on the go. Previously to that, I had studied privacy-preserving machine learning, applied to uh, different healthcare use cases. I went through a health tech accelerator for a hospital in the area that I grew up in. Previous to that, I worked at this startup that was working on um, sort of creating these intensive educational processes for introducing people who are traditionally underexposed to cutting-edge STEM areas who work with NASA, RPE. DARPA, the NIH, to create a intensive six-week educational course on things like additive manufacturing or computational neuroscience. The idea there was <clears throat> both of the founders of this organization went to MIT and realized they had very sustained levels of women in STEM before it was a thing to push for those numbers. And a lot of those people either had a hands-on experience or a 
a mentor that was really active in their life that introduced them to that field. And so we wanted to figure out how to do that in a more accelerated way for people who are making career transitions later in life. And before that, I worked at uh, a startup that got acquired by Gartner doing B2B SaaS market research. And so I learned about every niche world of B2B SaaS and those all of those experiences really formed a good background for being in VC. I think that I honestly did not know much about VC until I joined about a year and a half ago. Got it. That's a really cool story. You're maybe one of the first people I've met that went through the Lambda School process. How did that come about? What was it like? And what led you to make the decision to dive into it? Yeah, I guess I'll touch quickly on my previous education because that influences that. So I I had a hard time deciding what I was going to do about college. My parents both had atypical college backgrounds and didn't really know how to navigate that whole process. So I started a four-year university that they really wanted me to be at, but I had a pretty poor experience for a bunch of complicated reasons. And basically one semester and I was like, this is absolutely not the move. I need to switch schools. And so I applied somewhere else and got in and couldn't pay for it and end up having a complicated sort of like personal family situation and also ended up like moving out very abruptly at that point in my life. And so then I was like, wow, I really need to figure out what I'm going to do for my education. So I started going to community college. And so I was studying computer science there, among other things. And I realized the computer science classes really were not aligned with what actually seemed to get my friends in the industry jobs. And so then I just started trying to go to as many lectures in DC as possible. Any free public educational event, I would just show up that. And then sometimes even if they weren't free, I would just show up that and they'll still let you in. But then I started looking at a lot of boot camps because I realized they were sort of geared towards exactly what I was thinking about, which was what are the skills that will actually get you job? I still am a fan of the four-year liberal arts education. I think it's like a really nice luxury to have that like broader like perspective framing your education. But at the same time, the biggest cost there is the four years that you're not making income if you're pressed for money. And so I think boot camps are an interesting way to address that. Anyways, I looked at Lambda School's curriculum for a while and a few friends who act- actively were doing data science looked over the the syllabus and were very encouraged by everything that it covered and so I joined the program I did the first five months of it I think and then ended up having a lot of issues I think the reality is they really struggled to align both the hard skills which they do okay at teaching you and the soft skills that actually get you job in reality and it seems now that more is coming out about them actually not having the placement metrics that they talk about it's somewhere more around 50 percent of students actually get placed in a job so it was a pretty poor experience honestly which is why i dropped out of limb school in the middle of it but yeah it's i i wish it worked i really wish it worked i think there needs to be something between a four-year uh, degree and like a trade school certificate, which I think is what Lambda School is aiming for. Totally feel it. I think for all of our listeners, partners, entrepreneurs, other VCs, et cetera, I think your path is something that needs to be heard more about. I didn't come from a wealthy background and like being on like federal financial aid and scholarships made it possible for me to go to like effectively a need blind school. But I know yeah. so many incredible people like who end up taking alternative paths. Like I remember the smartest kid I ever met in high school. He decided to go to community college and then very creative, gritty path to getting to where it needs to be. But that needs to be changed because we're losing so many great people. One shout out to you for making it to where you are. It's incredible. And two, shout out to Lambda School and everyone who's trying to figure out ways to crack this code. 
which is which is starting to heat up, and, and I'm really happy to see that. Do you have any recommendations before we jump to the next part of like programs that are better or anything that could be helpful to anyone hearing this? Please share. No, that was off script, but it's really important. Yeah, definitely. No, I this is something I really care about because I'm like, I know how difficult it was for me to navigate this situation. So A, if you're going through the FAFSA process and trying to file as independent, which is a very not common situation, and I navigated that for a year and a half reach out to me. You can reach out to me on Twitter at nwilliam030. I have a few threads about this, but finding Reddit pages was the most helpful thing ever in navigating that process. In terms of trying to get an education when you maybe don't have a ton of financial backing or you're suddenly independent, I think understanding what your goals are is really important. And so I can mostly speak only to trying to like find something that created income for me immediately. And I think in that sense, there are more and more big companies that have some sort of Lambda school type boot camp on the front end that you can enter for free with the ideals of recruiting people. I know Capital One has an entirely free boot camp that you can go through, and there's no expectations other than that you hopefully join the company. And I think that's a much more interesting solution because the soft skills that you end up learning there are obviously just extremely aligned with what the company is actually looking for. And I think that's the harder part about Lambda School or any of those other boot camps. And any of those things are what you may get, but I would really suggest sort of like addressing whatever you're looking for with very like point-focused solutions. Coursera courses are also really, really, really great as long as they're applicable to what you're trying to learn. But those would be my suggestions. Yeah, this is a, this is gold. I can't remember who it was who we talked about this with or if I read it, but there was a thesis that companies will end up becoming the educational institutions and having vertical solutions. And I think that will be the new thing. Number one and two, it's just the most applicable podcast that we've done, period, to like a broad audience because we will give it VC advice. So it's easy. Just like go to a top 50 school and then work really hard and get into a consulting or banking thing. And then maybe you'll just land a job through some John Gannett blog. <laughs> or like just go to a startup that gets sold and is successful or something. Like that's the dumbest. Yeah. Like it's great, but it's like the most privileged piece of advice ever. But this is what the 99.5% of people will end up doing if they want to pursue some, one of these types of paths. So just get a high paying tech job in general. With yeah. that... Yeah. All VCs, shame on you. Uh, I'm kidding, kidding. <laughs> but let's feed them a little bit and maybe feed some of the entrepreneurs who did do the, the Caltech, MIT, et cetera path. And uh, maybe talk a little bit about Compound and uh, what you all are all about. I actually think it's one of the more refreshing firms. And I think getting technical, there's one thing to be thesis driven, but there's another thing to be like academically thesis driven. And uh, I would love to to have the world dig more into what what compound yeah yeah definitely compound was founded in 2009 and we just started deploying out of our fourth fund which is very exciting david hirsch founded this fund he was pretty early at google and he came over and got into the world of venture i think it's interesting to mention that history just because like no one at our firm was ever like fully financed for like several decades like heads down in that space and i think that shapes how we approach interacting with people like how we approach learning how we approach like fund management generally and yeah like I said we're pretty thesis driven we're focused on pre-seed and seed <clears throat> we generally invest in what we call frontier tech and the common denominators between those areas are data science and ml robotics and automation and then digital health and biotech and then recently we've been really doubling down in synthetic bio 
those are just the common areas. There's always things outside of that. But yeah, typically it involves reading a lot of white papers, reading a lot of research for industries that it's not as formalized like gaming, for example, trying to find really the center of who is creating things in that space and talking to them about what they think the future looks like and what they what the history of that space looks like. And just, yeah, really trying to develop a thesis of what the ideal company in that space will look like or what an investable opportunity looks like. And obviously, in to some degree, that will always be a little bit of a futile attempt because we're never going to know more than founders, but it really just gives us sort of a better foundation to go into conversations with highly specified founders and say, look, we've done a reading on this space. We might have a naive approach, but feel free to break our thesis. This is what we thought, like, how do we work from this, this sort of like stepping point. And so, yeah, we think that helps us a lot for a lot of reasons. We focus with founders a lot on narrative building with frontier tech companies, especially that might not be as like accessible to a generalist investor audience. We think we, we can especially help them navigate how to frame what they're doing to the broader world. This also, I'm writing about this at the moment. So it's very top of mind, I think, in a world where it's really challenging to hire. This matters a lot because our portfolio companies are constantly fighting with all the big tech companies for talent. And so the narrative that you tell about what you're working on is very important to bring in the best people to your company. And then it's also that kind of tumbleweed of then being able to raise finances because your company is doing well and like narrative really does matter there. Yeah. What else can I answer about compound and how we operate? I actually want to dig a bit more into the narrative. I think that's huge. And uh, I just yeah. read this book or finished reading this book this morning, ironically called, uh, called start with why and then there's the the why and the how and the narrative and they talk about like the apple actually being more about the narrative of unlocking the creator or amazon being the instant or enablement of commerce or all these types of things and in frontier tech that's even huge if you're investing in biotech imagining the world in which this part of the body or this problem is completely eradicated or this can be completely different right i would love for you to talk about the importance of narrative in your world and your role and uh, really just how that's becoming more and more important as an investor and as someone who impacts companies. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially like pre-product market fit matters a ton. I think we're all seeing this shift in the venture world where like post-product market fit, like growth stage capital is just becoming a commodity. And obviously like Tiger is coming in and just shaking up all the like venture level dynamics. And so at that level, it's interesting because narrative almost Narrative from the general venture perspective maybe is less top of mind for funds who are helping companies, but I think on the earlier stage, it matters especially to have a focus that you can help founders with. And I guess I'm switching back and forth between narrative on the like firm side and the founder's side. On the firm side, we think it's like really important to know what we double down in. And on the founder's side, I think it's just... Yeah, it's when you're working on something that's exceptionally technical, it matters even more that if you don't have the super typical like B2B SaaS model that you're able to explain your vision to VCs incredibly clearly and other stakeholders, they understand like how each elaborate technical milestone translates to like clear sort of inflection points in your business and inflection points in, in how you're thinking about raising and growing your team and all the rest of that. Yeah, totally. I would love to hear your thoughts on a few companies or stories that you believe to be incredible narratives. Like, uh, whether maybe even what are some of the ingredients? Like, number of stories told, owning your media, 
increasing the number of storytellers on your vision, those types of things. Yeah. So one one specific thing I'll mention, and again, <laughs> this this uh, ties into what I'm writing about currently, but I've been doing a deep dive in um, PR, marketing, and design firms that work with like deeply technical companies and the services they provide, and then what that sort of like marketing campaign has looked like. And since I recently wrote this thesis in quantum computing, both software and hardware, and then also quantum sensing, and like what that looks like from a venture investable perspective. I've been thinking a lot about like how quantum companies, which are exceptionally technical, communicate what they're doing to an audience that probably starts out with very little knowledge about why what they're doing matters. Um, and the data is not finalized yet, hoping to get a more solid final set of data to publish. But it, it, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of these companies that do the very best at running these online advertising campaigns and, and their sites have gone to like really big generalist PR firms or marketing firms like Pentagram, for example, is like a huge one based in New York. And they really don't have a focus on startups or venture like backed startups or anything like that, but they do an exceptional job in translating what quantum, what quantum is to the public. And so that's interesting to me. What's that? Um, Pentagram is one of them. So they're, yeah, probably like top five design firms of all time. Wow. Okay. So people listening here, entrepreneurs, Nicole, there's the one you just mentioned. Are there any others that should be on people's radars? So I think that's really helpful. Um, I, as like a person yes. making a company, I'm like looking for this like avid. <laughs> I spent three hours last yeah, night thinking yeah. about yeah, so I have a whole list. I don't have it in front of me right now. So honestly, most of them are not top of mind. But I will say it's very tiered by what spend level you have available at the moment. And so Pentagram is extraordinarily expensive because they have no shortage of demand for their talent, obviously. And so that's also an interesting like side note of kind of what I was talking about earlier about the tumbleweed of financing and just making everything a little bit easier for you, of course. And so I'm trying to find also for earlier stage, for earlier stage companies, smaller organizations that will help with doing a deck at seed stage for a bio company, for example, like bio founders are normally extremely technically minded. And so trying to find something that will both capture the technical details of what they're trying to convey, but also make sure that it's like streamlined and accessible to the general audience is important. But I will hit you up with that list. Hopefully we're planning to publish some parts of that but also yeah just double down on that as a firm cool yeah please do we'll include it in the newsletter when we release this so that uh more and more people can start to get that aligned but yeah that is dope i kind of cut you off so <laughs> if you name like any companies you thought that did it well and if not we'll continue the the, the, the flow here yeah let's see I'll go on. I'll go on about some other like general, generally important things. I don't know if I want to name companies, but yeah, I think some other important aspects are having a very broad vision that applies to a large amount of people. Some of the bio ones are pretty interesting, but it's like, what disease are you making less risky or something like what what ultimately is the way that your company is affecting humanity basically I think is a pretty important question to answer and then making sure to tie that broader narrative to smaller chunks of how you're working on that as a company I think internally and like facing investors and other stakeholders and making sure each of those steps in the narrative process are tied to a real 
product and or research development. So obviously everybody knows the examples of where this didn't happen, Theranos being one of them, where you have the really big vision and you have maybe the cult-like following of engineers and people who are obsessed with your company, but there wasn't really a actual product level development level of steps that aligned with that narrative. And so that is obviously very important. Totally agree. Either you uh, tell your own story or you end up like Theranos and have 50 people telling you. Um, not going to harp on that. Shout out to Ambition. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of the verticals you're interested in. I know you're interested in deep tech, so maybe dive into those spaces there that, you, that you're loving. And maybe even relevant to some of our earlier conversation, the future of digital education. Yeah, yeah. There's so much here, so I'm going to try and keep it simple. Uh, but yeah, broadly data-informed healthcare, I love. Uh, before I came to Compound, I was really interested in how you could use uh, data using privacy-preserving machine learning techniques that would typically be inaccessible by HIPAA, which is like a privacy, healthcare privacy data regulation. But if you use some interesting machine learning techniques, some of that information makes more healthcare data more accessible in a way that is still secure and safe. And I was interested in how you could use certain biomarkers and their concentration to more efficiently diagnose certain types of cancer. So this is a thing that's broadly been happening within healthcare for a while and most people know, but essentially we have a lot of interesting data that ties often to things like cancer, but sometimes that data and the parts of it that are interesting are at such scale that it would be impossible for a doctor sitting with you in your checkup to really dive into that. So one example is mRNA concentration can be really indicative of kidney cancer, but then there are a few things that could intervene in it. If you've had a recently had a common, a common cold or something else like that, that might affect the concentration numbers. And so doctor really can't sit down and just look at that quickly. However, machine learning is really good at taking that metric along with some other recent ones about your health and trying to understand whether you might be at risk for kidney cancer. And kidney cancer can be pretty high risk. And so it matters a lot that you've found that on the earlier end. And so generally there's a pattern of that type of problem set being explored within digital health broadly, which is how do you get this big um, data set for some type of healthcare like biomarker, whether it's your blood pressure or your sweat or whatever else, and how do you tie that to some condition and warn people more effectively. And so that is really interesting. That's happening in like a billion different ways. Sometimes it's wearables, Sometimes it's people sharing their electronic health records and, and sharing that for research. Don't you, I believe you have a really interesting piece, like the federated future, the future is federated or something like that. Did you, do you yeah. dive into that a little bit more or dive into this a little bit more on that piece that we can share with everyone a little bit later? Yeah, sure. So federated learning specifically is what I was researching before. And Google came out with this paper in 2017. They were the first people to implement it at scale. The research had existed for a long time, but effectively what happens, you have Google keyboard or even Apple keyboard at this point, when you're texting people, when you're doing like, when you're texting and your keyboard autocorrects, which is called predictive text, then those recommendations that are brought to your phone, rather than sending all of your text data to some server somewhere else, that could potentially be vulnerable to somebody seeing it and reading about your, I don't know, your address or some other sensitive information. A model is trained locally, a machine learning model is trained locally on your phone, and only the high level updates to that model are sent to the cloud. 
And so that provides some very interesting effects in terms of what secure data is being sent where and what somebody could take away from it if that server elsewhere were to be hacked. And so people are applying this to a lot of different things now and with healthcare data, it's especially interesting if you can train a model locally, preserve all of that very specific healthcare information and then only have the high level takeaways sent to the cloud. And so I was talking a little bit about that in the article. There's a bunch of businesses that this could apply to. Healthcare is one of them. Government is another. Most commonly right now, we see this applied to like banking fraud. Basically, <clears throat> banks often have a bunch of huge silos of data that can't be combined or shared or studied collectively for a complicated complicated regulatory reasons. But with federated learning, you can train models on both of those silos, slap those high-level learnings together and still get a model that was almost as effective as if you had just trained it on both of those groups of data. And so that's it's a very interesting sort of new area of privacy preserving machine learning. Gotcha. Very, very cool. I'm going to take a moment to psych everybody out and uh, let you give a, a quick, like, blow your mind session on quantum. So I remember you speaking on that a little bit earlier, and I know you also have a really great piece on that. And then maybe we can close out with, uh, with the, ed, the future of education piece or digital education. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So quantum is interesting. I decided to dive into it because, I don't know, it's one of those areas people associate with frontier tech, and there's a lot of big promises. But the companies we're seeing were all over the place, and I wanted to just have a view on what was investable now versus what was going to be investable in five years versus what was investable, like not for a long time. And so it was really just reading a lot of papers, talking to some experts in the area, um, talking to some people at the Creative Destruction Lab based in Toronto, which has had a quantum specific program underneath it for a long time. So it was cool to hear about the history of people trying to commoditize these businesses there for a long time, which few people have that perspective since it's such a theoretical space right now. But essentially, the high-level takeaway is that right now, <laughs> quantum computers um, barely exist. So qubits are a fundamental unit of information akin to bits in classical computing. And these units are very hard to keep stable, <laughs> but that's pretty essential to creating a, a fully effective quantum computer. And so right now we're in this sort of an intermediate area of quantum computing where there are a few things you can do. And a few people have written theoretical papers about what these applications look like in the intermediate term. Nobody has really found a real life problem that the hardware we currently have applies more effectively to than a classical computer would. And the most interesting business models that I think exist are almost this like consulting level approach to exploring problem spaces across all of these <laughs> different quantum hardwares that currently exist and trying to find an algorithm that would be more effective uh, with a quantum computer than a classical computer. And it doesn't sound that complicated, but it's actually pretty, pretty important because a few people have thought that they found a quantum problem that might be more effective on quantum hardware and then somebody ends up coming with a coming up with a faster classical algorithm. So some people will approach some sort of logistical driving problem for example, how to optimize route you're driving. They'll go to a company and say, "Hey, pay us for a 6-month program of research and they'll take six different quantum hardware solutions that exist currently which all have different trade-offs in terms of the computation they're able to do at the moment." 
and we'll also use one classical computer and we'll see what we can do across all of these different hardwares and, and provide you with a sort of research report of what is most effective. And it's likely that for a lot of these, they end up leaning back on a, on a classical algorithm, but for the one solution they find at some point that would find that a, a quantum algorithm is more effective, that would be a huge find for a company essentially. And so I think those approaches are interesting, but the investable world right now is relatively small and a lot of people are peddling quantum software that really doesn't make sense. It's a layer for something that doesn't totally exist. Some people have some interesting approaches to maybe bringing in customers and educating them proactively. That seems to be the main goal of selling quantum software. But for the most part, I think a lot of these companies are waiting on technology that is not quite here yet. Yeah, totally agreed. I a great point. We'd made some early quantum bets and a lot of them were like developer tools for when things do adapt. And uh, when it came time to follow on, we're just like, yo, <laughs> this thing may, may not occur for another 12 years. And that just doesn't fit our horizon. But if you can find some of the things that have like real applications or making some types of like actual strides to accelerate that process, a lot more interesting. Uh, I have a friend Definitely. who like, as an interesting transition to education, she worked with me at Morgan Stanley when I was 18 or 19 or something like that. And she quit finance to move every part of her life into quantum. So she like went to Stanford, uh, MIT and Harvard to study quantum. And now she's doing her PhD at Stanford and working with, I think NASA and KRB, who'd be a really, really interesting person to talk to about this stuff. Sometimes you can't be here for four or five months because she's like just in some lab with her head down. <laughs> but like, I'll catch up with her soon or try to. And I would love for you to just play like back and forth and, and see who can go deeper down the hole. Because there might be some really interesting things you all can work on together. Yeah, yeah. Always love to talk to that, those types of people. That would be great. Yeah. So last piece before we, I guess, start to close out our quick fire and we give you your one golden ticket to ask us anything in the world, whether it be our darkest secrets or some investing thing. Tell us a little bit about digital education, which you may have already talked on, but just general yeah. thesis so you can maybe get some inbound or catalyze someone else to focus on the space and, and help fuel or whatever it might be the outcome. Yeah, cool. I think, so I'll caveat this with education is like outside the what we typically education is outside what, of what we had typically seen as frontier tech i think there's a lot of people selling sort of managerial software or things that are like a little bit less interesting to us i guess the way i specifically see it is that the question of like how education will fundamentally overlap with computers in the future is like a very important one and i had a lot of experience with sort of this question as I did like semester after semester of online courses is like every imaginable setup of online education and so I became really interested in that question I did a lot of like research on Bloom's two sigma which is a theory about what effectiveness can look like as you scale up classroom scale and sort of one-on-one one-on-one focus from a teacher to a student and so basically I guess I'll say we look at a a smaller realm of educational tech specifically often um, infrastructure for setting up an at-home classroom that isn't entirely focused on having a student um, sit in front of a screen all day. So I'm super interested in opportunities that give parents or other caretakers tools for um, 
walking their students through curriculum, teach the students how to learn themselves. I think learning how to learn is like a really important goal of any type of education. And then ultimately use the digital aspect to either assess students and their knowledge in a more organic way, having them talk through a subject or that type of thing. And then also giving parents or other caretakers backup they need in walking students through this curriculum. And I think that'll become a more important approach to education as more parents realize that especially young students probably don't need to be sitting at a desk for eight hours a day. I think COVID and at-home education obviously is probably really accelerating this frustration with a lot of parents. And there are a lot of interesting ways to navigate the problem of how much a parent can really spend at home work on this type of education as well. I think homeschooling co-ops are a really interesting example of how communities take a few different families and have one parent teaching one subject and managing maybe five kids and pass those students off. So parents are still having plenty of time to to work and there's plenty of guided education, but still maybe preventing a student from having to sit at a desk in a classroom doing maybe more busyness focused work for an entire day. Uh, sorry, my mute button got stuck, but uh, that is dope. Very, very dope. I want to dive further into it, but we are running up on time. So ask us anything in the world and then we'll take it out with a quick fire with play. Which, by the way, today is Clay's birthday, and uh, I just want to take a moment to say to everyone, tell Clay happy birthday or happy belated birthday whenever you hear this. He's an amazing human. (laughs) Happy birthday, Clay. Hopefully you're going to celebrate in some way soon. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. Nicole, ask Clay three things that make him smile or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I like the question that you guys had, which is what is like something that's changed your life in a really positive way in the last year? Poof. Tyler, you want to go first or you want me? Uh, you got this one. I'll follow up. Sheesh. Honestly, cliche answer here, but working on Confluence with Tyler for the last year, like I know everybody says that the best way to learn something is just through doing it rather than the apprenticeship model or formal education teaching you how to do something like we've just been able to run experiments without a whole lot of permission just because it's been him and I I think that has been like I've learned more in the past year and a quarter I guess we're like 15 months into this now than I did the previous 10 so I'd say in the last year that's probably been my biggest catalyst what do you think Tyler I would agree with that. <laughs> okay, I got it. I got a chill because on the last podcast, I was like, I agree verbatim. But <laughs> no, I would say that Confluence in Clay in particular, I love the way that Clay builds things. And like he's, he's action oriented, very little words, just get it done. So being around him and building this was a big thing. One, because it's unlocked a lot of doors for us. We've met incredible people every single week, like yourself. We've helped a lot of people educate themselves, break into the space, learn things they wouldn't have otherwise. And then for ourselves, we learn that you can just be and you can be your own platform. So like through doing this, we've elevated our venture careers. And through doing this, we realized that venture is dope. And like now we have a stable platform in it. And we have our own small like investment vehicle and have some other things in the works that we're going to reveal. But also we both decided to try to do companies and for Clay, that was going to Visible. And for me, that was going to build a few of my own companies alongside some serial entrepreneurs. And um, I guess just taking that leap of faith 
professionally and in our personal lives from, from traveling and living in, I don't know how many countries for the last year and a half, two years has just completely changed my life and made me a generally happier and more self-confident human. <laughs> that's awesome. Those are great answers. Happy birthday to Clay. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very cool to hear. Yeah. yeah also, coming, off such a, coming off such a great year, it's hard to believe that that's No, I know, I know. For negative. I think I'm like still waking up on Mondays. But I'd say living nomadically has, uh, like we've, Tyler and I have both played around with that for the past, I don't know, nine months, like maybe longer. Some people hate that. I think that's been really cool. Like a different way to work slash live slash enjoy life outside of work. So I'll add that as like second part of my answer. But anyway, appreciate the birthday wishes. Was not expecting that during that. Nicole, you want to close this out with quick fire questions? Yeah, can you start with sure. that one though? We would love to hear that first. For sure. So Nicole, we have these at the end. Um, five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We'll flip that question you just asked us back to you. So in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Two sentences or less. Oh my gosh. The last year, I mean, I got married like five months ago. So that's pretty transformational. Yeah. Biggest level up. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, it's pretty radical to all always be tied to someone else. You're learning how to, I don't know, learning self-sacrifice, like learning to work together on everything. Just yeah, pretty transformative in terms of mental state. Yeah. I remember when we were trying to get you on and like I sent you a note and then just being really annoying with follow-up emails. And then you got back to me and said, Hey, sorry, I just got married. I was like, oh my God, I feel like such an asshole for bothering you during your honeymoon. No. But congrats. Oh, thank you for following up. Sorry. Please send gifts. What's, what, what's left on your on your like gift list that no one decided to give you that we can just come in the clutch and, and, and just be heroes? I think it was, I think we got it all, but like this podcast is the gift. Word. <laughs> we can deliver on that. All right, next one. What's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? That people need to follow like the most common high signal path because then you end up competing. You end up competing with everyone in that like very traditional competitive path. And you can just easily, you just think about what you're optimizing for take a different path that maybe gets you more directly there and not end up competing with everyone along the way. Yeah, find the least crowded channel, path of least resistance. I feel like there's a few different ways to verbalize the same thing. I think Tim Ferriss is big about that. At least that's where my head was going when you were explaining that. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm. Next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? This is tangential. Hopefully it's still allowed. Just the amount of brilliant work that doesn't make sense for a venture scale business, like in terms of scale, where we sit, especially, I think we end up taking a lot of brilliant, talking to a lot of brilliant academics that have worked for years on some pretty life-changing stuff, but the market sizing can just not make sense for our firm. And often we're the people explaining that dynamic just rough because <laughs> they're clearly brilliant people. It's clearly amazing technology. It's not even, it's not saying no, it's just that it literally like venture does not encompass 
the potential for all of these different types of businesses and ventures, the, the thing that gets talked about the most. And so, yeah, having to be like, actually, it doesn't really fit in this category well is rough. Yeah, 100%. Our, um, our next guest is actually, I think he's going to talk about that more of just like the different opportunities for capital outside of venture. Because again, like the loudest category is obviously venture because like media operates on rounds closed and like size of rounds that's just like front page news but yeah it's just not right for most businesses i'd argue 95 percent of businesses should not take venture capital dollars just doesn't make sense but i agree with all that i got two more here best piece of advice for junior vcs or those aspiring to break into venture this applies a little bit before what i said but just Think about, think independently about what you're optimizing for and how this job would fit into your bigger life picture. Even if that picture isn't like the most permanent version, it can help you target the type of people, the firm size, the firm focus that you really want to work for. And you should pick like five or less of those and then really study them more deeply. Probably give them a sample of your work, maybe like writing on a thesis specifically that fits their firm's needs. We had someone once interviewed doing this and they would ask, after that if they could show us like another piece of research by like having us pick a topic and then sending it to us in three days and I think that's the best way to be like look right now I have the skills for what you're looking for and I've actually even maybe identified problem spaces you're thinking about that you didn't know explicitly and that's I think a great way to get a job at a specific firm you're looking at yeah no 100 percent 100 percent and then last one we got who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to could be more than one as well. We, uh, yeah, we, we don't need to limit it to one. I think Deb Perry, this woman, so I lived with a family that was not my own family for the last four years until I got married. She's just great, a great person to go to with any sort of life questions. So shout out to Deb Perry. <laughs> shout out Deb Perry. Well, I think that wraps everything up. Nicole, again, really appreciate you making time. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for reaching out and the follow-ups. Yeah, no, appreciate you saying yes when you have a hundred other things going on. Sounds good. Have a good rest of the day, you guys. Huge thanks again to Nicole for coming on this week. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Nicole, we've linked her social info in the description below, and you can also find her contact info in the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.vc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.